Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 23rd, 2020, the last debate of Donald Trump's career edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. Yes. Oh, God, you know it's good when you get a Dickerson sound effect. Uh, David, what is CityCast? Well, I'm going to talk about it in my cocktail chatter, but briefly, CityCast is a network of daily local news podcasts in cities around the country that I am going to launch uh, that I am launching this winter, and I'm going to need folks to work with and and uh, advice, and but mostly colleagues. So I'm going to talk more about it as my cocktail chatter today. But city, citycast.fm. David Plotz is hiring. Check it out. <laughs> so uh, joining me today, supporting me from their cities, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And from somewhere... Not his home, I think. Maybe he's in D.C., actually, is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Yeah, I'm in D.C. for the debate. Definite hotel room vibe behind John. Yeah. Oh, my God. Such a hotel room vibe there. Just... Give them, give them a little visual. First of all, I'm on a Dell XPS 13, which has the, the camera so that it just perfectly shoots up your nostrils. Some, somebody was just napping when they designed this. And then I've got the saddest DMV curtains behind me, but enough mm-hmm. light coming through so that I'm backlit, that, so that it really makes it feel like I'm in some kind of awful ward. The GabFest is brought to you by Dell. <laughs> Um, on today's GabFest, the second and final presidential debate, what happened? Will it change the dynamics of the race going forward? Then there have been a mind-blowing array of Trump outrages this week. The 500-plus children separated from their parents whose parents cannot be found. The $25 billion potential giveaway to a company with shady Trump ties the secret bank account in China, the possibility that Trump got $10 million out of Egypt mysteriously before the 2016 election as a secret gift. So many, so many outrages. What does this mean about what a second term or what a lame duck might be like? Then a new surge in COVID across the world and across the U.S., along with ambivalence about opening schools, a crazy theory of herd immunity coming out of the White House. How are we going to get through the dark winter that we are warned is coming? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Last night, Joe Biden and Donald Trump held the second and final debate of this presidential campaign. It was very different than the first debate. Moderator Kristen Welker had a firm handle on it and rules about when the mics were muted and not, limited Trump's ability to interrupt. But mostly the president came out clearly intent on showing himself to be less of a 
bullying, interrupting, uh, hyper manic monster than he was last time. John, you have spent a lot of time thinking about debates, watching debates, analyzing debates, and you were, of course, doing that with last night's debate. What was the most important thing that came out of last night's debate, if anything? Well, it depends what uh, category you want to... If you believe that debates are changed, debates only matter and change things when there's a huge gaffe or a huge mess up like the president's behavior in the first one, then it then the most important thing is that the the race will continue along the lines that it did before without much interruption by the events in the debate, which is a big win for Joe Biden. I mean, this would be this is the most watched planned event between now and the end of an end of voting and to have gotten through it with a highly unpredictable adversary across the way is a big victory for Biden, who in the three set piece moments, there should have been four, but in the three set piece moments of the campaign, the convention speech and the two debates, he has gotten through them and gotten through them. Well, I thought he did better in this debate actually than even in the first one for the president who needs, uh, needed something more. He didn't get it. He may get it some other way or the election may continue down some other path, but he didn't do anything to change the dynamic last night, which is a hard thing to do in a single debate, but he needs to do it because of where the state of the race is. The final point is the most important thing for me uh, is debates, you know, I I have mixed views about them, but I thought the last question was a really great one. Um, And we can talk about it later. The question about how would you reach out to the other side in your inaugural speech? I thought it was just a great, a great question. And um, the answers were interesting and revealing. I thought that there was no game changer. There was a ton of lying from Donald Trump. And so I always wonder, in the moment, it's quite effective because Biden kept calling him out and saying that's false. But it's really not until after the debate when um, people come on and start fact checking that you really know for sure. I mean, there's so many factual claims. I still am listening to Donald Trump think to myself, well, he can't be just like making that up. And then it turns out that he is. Can I ask a question about that, Emily, and interrupt you? Sorry. Which I was, I had, I was wondering about this last night. Donald Trump lies so often and so prevalently, and and it has, you know, it has cost him some things, but but it's been the basis of his political career in a lot of ways. Do you think that Trump's success line and the little account he's been held to about it means that other politicians are going to adopt this same strategy, or is he uniquely capable of it because he is a sociopath and then does can get away with it? He just like can do it so brazenly, whereas other politicians, because they are not sociopaths, are less able to do that. I mean, I think we already saw Mike Pence lying prodigiously in the last debate in a way that I found surprising. So I do think that there is an effect on other people. Um, I don't know if they'll take it to Trump's highs or lows, probably be the better word. But I, I think it is bleeding into the rest of the political culture. Depends how much he loses by if he loses, though. If he wins, of course, it'll, <laughs> everybody will do it. But if he if he takes if he loses, takes a shellacking that might reset things a tiny bit. So going into these debates and going in even to this presidential campaign, one of the clear strategies of the Trump campaign was Biden's a senile, doddering old fool. And they were kind of banking on this. And clearly, part of Trump's strategy in the first debate was to throw off Biden and to make him increase his stutter and to make him word salad everything and to use that as a way of of suggesting that Biden is unfit for office. And clearly, that failed. Clearly, Emily, that overall strategy of 
of using the debates to to make Biden seem incapable of being a, a, a cogent president did not succeed, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of puzzled why they went so far with this. I sort of feel like Trump must have drunk his own Kool-Aid on this because there was never real evidence for it, at least not to anything like the extent Trump was anticipating or laying out. And I, I don't know, maybe he overestimated his own bullying capabilities. And maybe this is part of the bubble of the presidency that nobody is defer- telling you no. And so you think it's going to be more effective in the moment than it really is. I mean, the needling last night was, I think, a more restrained version of what we saw in the first debate. But I feel like Biden just kind of stayed on his path. And I mean, he is not a great debater. Like, he is really not that good at it. He doesn't have zingers at his disposal. He's not quick on his feet, particularly with rejoinders. It's frustrating because if you're taking umbrage at, at Trump's bullying, you want someone who's more effectively cutting him down to size. But he, but Trump did not succeed in addling him. And Trump had set the bar at, at that, which was pretty high. John, you were making a face there. Was that a face of yeah. response? Emily Emily ended up saying it, which is that, that Joe Biden is not good. It has not been good in his career in debates. And remember, one of his highlights from 2008 was when Brian Williams said, Joe Biden, you have um, you know a history of being verbose. And uh, are you going to be able to not be? And his... Um, I may be butchering it slightly. And his answer was wonderful. He said, yes. And that's all he said. But but implicit in that whole drama was that he just goes on and on and on and on. And his debate, two debate performances and his convention speech showed um, an adaptability, notable late in life, hard to do with humans, particularly ones who've reached a certain level of success, where he um, was disciplined and focused, didn't take the bait, didn't do things like attack the president's children when his children were attacked. Tempting. Must have so, been tempting. Tempting. Per- exactly. No, it's exactly right. Didn't take didn't take the bait and basically also delivered several of the obvious set piece lines, which matter because those are the ones that get replayed, you know, on cable TV and the rest of it. So it was kind of striking to see him perform. I mean, he has Ron Klain, who's his uh, adv- former advisor, current advisor, you know, has an expertise in this. But you can have experts around you and not listen to them. Can I say Biden has still failed to clearly explain his own health care plan? I really think that. Like, what he said about automatic enrollment in Medicaid, like, no, a public option is like everybody gets to have the public option if they want to. And he didn't really ever clearly say that, I don't think. He is one of the worst explainers. Trump is worse, I suppose. But Biden is, yeah, I was is, say, Biden is a shockingly poor explainer. Of Trump things. is like unexplaining, but yes. Biden is failing to explain clearly. I, but I think the thing, the thing that I find powerful in Biden's debate performances and whenever he speaks is when there is a moment where you need to show humanity. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, his response to the, the news that we have lost the parents of 500 plus children and the kind of clear sorrow and anger that he evinced there and and the shame that he feels as an american and the shame that we should feel as a country about it i thought was was his most effective moment i also thought he handled the question toward the end about people who live on what he called fence lines like near power plants or near oil industry 
his evoking of his own childhood, that very specific image of the oil slick on the windshield when he was growing up in Claymore, Delaware. Like, I, I don't You're not know from Scranton. Good. You're not even from Philly, Emily. Oh, come on. He lived in Scranton until he was 10. Was that kidding. counts. And I lived <laughs> in Philadelphia until I went to college. <laughs> Getting to the theater review of this, um, uh, I think I agree with you, Emily. He did it several times when he talked about the empty place in the bed for people who'd, um, who'd, uh, whose spouses had died of COVID-19. When he talked about the bald tires uh, of the family, um, that was all it, it played on two levels. One, it might have actually appealed to you. Two, when jo- when the president made fun of it and said, oh, this is just, you know, political pandering. I wonder if now, after four years of Donald Trump, like the stuff that might have irritated people about politics in the old days, which is that kind of quasi pandering and Biden's uh, response to Nora O'Donnell about about uh, increasing the number on the Supreme Court and saying he's going to have a commission, which is the, the kind of typical political punt on a tough issue nevertheless is kind of reassertion of a norm of typical political behavior, which after four years of the untypical might actually be comforting, even if it's not genuinely comforting in and of itself. Right. And Trump is unable to have a single moment like that. I mean, he's blustering and he's boasting and sometimes he makes you kind of with the sort of uh, cadences and insistence of his words, he makes you think like, oh, I guess, yeah, the economy is okay. But he doesn't um, ever give you any kind of like kernel of humanity and compassion to hang on to. He always turns it back into either his own aggrievement or his own braggery. People know he said he wasn't interrupting as much in the first debate, but what he did, he left so much on the table. And this, we talked about this before. If you're trying to convince people outside of your base which he clearly was trying to do in the debate. All of his other behavior seems very base-motivated, but this was obviously an attempt to appeal to voters outside of his base. You have to speak beyond the rally's edge. And even in the way he speaks, that staccato insider language, who in America knows what AOC plus three is? Yeah, me. I still beyond don't Beyond his rally. Um, and, what is and AOC plus three? It's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other members of Congress. Oh, like Ayanna um, Presley. Who are in the squad. Oh, yeah, oh. who are in the squad. Um, so anyway, but it's it just an inability to speak beyond his own base. And that was really true in the final question, which is a crucial question. Welker asked if during inauguration, how will you speak to those people who didn't vote for you? In a time of high partisanship, this is a key question to ask any presidential candidate. And Trump just, you know, shanked that one, too. Why did that question move you so much? And do you think Biden handled it well, John? I thought he handled it pretty well. It moved me because, you know, as you know so well, I'm obsessed with the um, distance between what we talk about in campaigns and what we talk about in the presidency. And I I felt like that one was a pretty close, fits in both categories. It tells you it's useful in the context of a debate, especially as an ending question. It's nice. It kind of rounds the evening off. But also, it's really important for a president to be able to speak to the people not in his base. It is one of the two component aspects of character, as as, you know, my favorite definition by James Q. Wilson, which is empathy, which is meaningfully taking into account the thoughts and feelings of other people. And so when you speak to those other people not in your base, you are showing empathy, not in a kind of touchy-feely, let's all get together and and hug at the right distance. But you need to understand what people are going through so that you can speak to them as a president of the whole country. It's what the president had trouble and is continuing to have trouble with on the race question. He doesn't hear 
the pain and anguish of the people protesting in the streets and can't speak to it. Well, you can't have that in a country. You must be able to take in and speak to people who are not, you know, attending your rallies. Um, and so that was a nice, for me, it's a way in which the attributes required in the job are tested in the debate. Well, and his response about Black Lives Matter was unbelievable. Like the idea that he brought up like the worst slogan associated with Black Lives Matter when that movement has come to mean so much more than that and um, is so much more popular and has accomplished more. That just, I mean, I don't know. To me, that was, I, I couldn't get over that moment. Well, and but it's very effective politics, Emily. I mean, it is, it really? is a way of, I think so. I mean, it's a way of, of saying that Black Lives First of all, the support for Black Lives Matter has dropped, especially among whites. And so, but I, it's still so, a majority. I think I felt like that was an insidery thing to do, like a sort of 2016, 2017 move that doesn't actually resonate to the best degree anymore. I mean, it's fine for turning out your base, but I, I question whether it actually is good politics more broadly speaking. Well, and it's particularly in the venue, he he was cl- clearly trying at some level to reach people outside his base. The base is locked in on this question. You got him. You're good. What you need to show, it seems to me, in that moment is some understanding, some ear, some empathy, some recognition of something other than the absolutely worst element of the entire set of ideas on the Black Lives Matter front. I mean, just say something else. Well, his something else is I'm the best president for black people since Abraham Lincoln, which is bananas and all about him and like puts him in this very weird position of whining about something that he just cannot defend. One of the things that was great about this debate was the moderator. I thought Kristen Welker did an excellent, excellent job. Emily, thoughts? Kristen Welker, disclosure, is a dear family friend, and I am extremely fond of her, and I was so proud of her and impressed by her. She just had the reins from the beginning. And, you know, obviously Trump was in a different mode than he was at the first debate. So this isn't a knock on Chris Wallace, but I just thought from beginning to end, she handled the whole thing with great aplomb. And I thought her questions were excellent, especially the question at the end that John was just pointing to us to. I totally agree. Bravo. And also, it was fun to watch little bits of art. If you go back, and um, one of the things I learned after a while at Face the Nation was that that sometimes you can't you can't fact check or you'll go down a road forever and you'll lose the whole conversation. But you can slip in a fact check before you move on to the next question, to which they uh, can't respond and she and she did that elegantly on one of the first one of the early questions. And so I that was a particular little sparkly moment. But the other great thing was she asked short, sharp questions. Key, right? Don't spend a thousand years asking your question. Second thing, she had great follow-ups, which were on point and was able to keep, that's the way you keep the reins is you keep them tight. And she was short and sharp in those follow-ups as well. And also, by the way, on a huge, incredibly complicated stage i mean in uh, by by which i mean the moment the build up the build up all that and the president attacking her fox news attacking the donations that her parents made which is just uh, the worst anyway so bravo to her so to close this out emily this was the last big public event of this campaign we have 10 days to go before election day or about 10 days something like 10 days 11 what is it that can happen, do you think, in the next 10 days that could change fundamentally the dynamics of the race? Or is there nothing really that can happen that could change the dynamics of the race? And I would point to the fact that the 
some of the president's supporters that seem to have been putting a lot of hope in this strange, incomprehensible Hunter Biden story. And that has landed with a, you know, a soft drop of a feather hitting the ground. It has not it has not anviled anyone. Right. So I think we'll continue to see weird, potentially fishy scarless information dribble out. I can't imagine they're finished with that. I mean, there was a really weird, um, I thought, collision last night between the Wall Street Journal editorial page and the Wall Street Journal newsroom, which seemed to have come to different conclusions about more Hunter Biden not revelations. I suppose it's possible we will see as yet some agency of government like the Justice Department um, used on behalf of the president. I would not rule that out. And then there's all the fighting and jockeying over voting and the potential for voter suppression, which also continues. So those are the things I um, have my own eye on. John, what about you? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the Hunter Biden thing is an attempt by the president to win a virtue contest. But obviously, if you use the same standard of proof that he uses with respect to Hunter Biden and apply that to the president and his private holdings and the conflicts with his job and the reporting about the countries to whom he is still in hawk, it's an order of magnitude except I don't really understand orders of magnitude. So let me just say the president has a much, much greater problem on that front. But that doesn't matter. What he's trying to do is just throw mud at at Biden to strip enough off of him that he can maybe diminish Biden's vote a little bit. I don't think that's that doesn't appear to be happening. Again, as you said, Emily, the conflict within the, just the journal itself between the editorial page or really Kim Strassel and the and the actual newspaper, you know, helps the, the Biden campaign uh, since the journalists undermine the case of the partisans. The biggest thing to watch is, of course, the, is the, the voting madness. And then I think the rest is, um, you know, I'm I and I know you are too, Emily, kind of driven by this piece, uh, opinion piece in the in the Times by Yana Krupnikov and John Barry Ryan, who I uh, quoted in the book for other research that they did. But in their piece in the Times, they write that basically the partisan Democrats are are you know obsessed by the president's latest outrage. Partisan Republicans are obsessed by the you know, Biden's latest outrage, but like 80% of the voters, regular voters, not regular Americans, but regular voters aren't paying much attention to any of that because the partisans are gone. They've done their voting for the people who might even be remotely up for grabs. This is just noise. Gapfest listeners, I want to encourage you to become a member of Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a membership program that allows you to support some of the great journalism that Slate does and allows you also to uh, get some bonus Gabfest. We do an extra segment every week on the GabFest for Slate Plus, list, Slate Plus members only. And uh, it's great. And we have a lot of fun doing it. And it's interesting. And it's a chance for us to kick back and talk about something that didn't quite make the top three topics. This week, we're going to talk about the story that obsessed a lot of people who are on Zoom, at least this week, the Jeff Tubin, the Jeff Tubin story. Those of you who are uh, listening to the show probably know what I mean without me having to get into the graphic details. But we will get into graphic details, maybe, on the Slate Plus segment. In any case, go to slate.com slash plus to become a member of Slate Plus today. It's just $35 for the first year. It will support the work Slate's doing, and it will help support this show. Thanks. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So honestly, in any other presidency, in any other time, there probably would have been about 10 stories this week that would have ended a presidency. We have the president this week doing things that corrupt on every axis of the presidency. He is obviously trying to warp the rails of justice to get the FBI and the attorney general to gin up investigations of Joe Biden and announce those to benefit him publicly. We have the news that 500 plus children separated from their parents by the Trump administration have not found their parents or the administration cannot find their parents for which Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller and Donald Trump and others should be in prison for this. The New York Times revealed a very shady Trump bank account in China with mysterious $15 million payment to Trump very recently. CNN revealed another shady set of indications that Trump received perhaps $10 million, maybe in the form of a gift or some sort of sweetheart loan from Egypt during the 2016 campaign. CNN revealed appallingly The depth of the corruption in this White House is such that they are trying to cram through a $25 billion sweetheart deal for a company tied to Karl Rove and Newt Gingrich. Uh, And then I just saw today, this morning, that the president is trying to strip civil service protections from tens of thousands of federal workers, which is another way that another thing that would warp the how government works and, and make government worse in all respects. So, John, I don't really have a question here but it is what's what's shocking is that of course none of it is shocking anymore right i mean you have different categories you have the the policy choices that are uh, that are shocking um the the family separation and the president's response to it during the debate um which is one category then there's the the uh, self-enrichment or enrichment of friends um which might escalate on the way out the door if the president is is not elected uh so you're you're right. I mean, it's not it's not shocking. And what's what is interesting to me, though, is we are about in a week to get a, a verdict on 
the price that's paid for any of this, because people have often said, you know, and the president pays no penalty for these various things. Well, we might see that he is either reelected, in which case that's totally true. He has pressed every boundary of the office beyond its breaking point in some cases, and he has consumed an entire political party um, and gotten everybody to line up behind that behavior. And if he wins, um, it will have been an extraordinary, it will be, I think, arguably a greater act of political success than his original election, because he did in practice what his critics could only talk about in theory when he was a candidate in 2016, and he won nevertheless in 2016. And if he's reelected, it will be sort of, proof of his Fifth Avenue claim about he can basically do what he wants and 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 he will be reelected. If he loses catastrophically, then um, then he it will not just be his loss, but it will it will reverberate throughout his party, I think. And so as you list off these things, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that the verdict is coming is coming due soon and the kind of existential feeling people have at all of this happening without any kind of judgment is is about to be um you know that you're going to get the judgment soon enough emily when i look at these stories they're all horrible in their own way but the one that is of course the most horrible at a human level is what was done to these children and these families and what i think is so shocking about the revelations of this week is not simply the the pain and the suffering of the parents which is a and and these children but the laziness of the united states government like the the kind of sort of desultory lazy efforts that the government has made to not it's not even the government that's trying to find the parents the government has sort of outsourced it it's not even bothering to do it the trump administration was so callous about these children and these children's lives that they don't even they didn't even bother to keep track of anybody and uh, it's a, it's unforgivable i mean i don't even know what the, what is the appropriate punishment for the people who have done this yeah that's a really good question i mean i went back and read the reporting from earlier this month about this inspector general report about the family separation and what's also really illuminating about it is the way in which underlings get pulled into doing something that they originally have a great moral hesitation about. You know, basically, Trump was really frustrated. He wanted some way to bring the number of illegal border crossings down. He started talking about prosecuting. And then Jeff Sessions, who was the attorney general at the time, and Rod Rosenstein, his top deputy, gave orders to the U.S. attorneys at the borders, like, don't decline to prosecute just because someone has a kid. And then you start seeing these emails and comments from people who are actually at the border saying, wait, we're taking breastfeeding babies away from their mothers. Like, I can't believe we're doing this. But they did it. And then you're absolutely right. They did it in a fashion that was absolutely, completely disinterested in reuniting people again. And it was about punishing the parents and deterrence through, like, the worst kind of um, consequences for families. It's really just unbelievable that this happened in the name of our government and in the name of all of us, and that to this day, there are 545 parents out there who don't have their kids, and those kids don't have their parents. And the Justice Department says, this isn't our problem, this is Department of Homeland Security, and then they pass the buck on to someone else. And all these people are implicated in this system, which is like, just this this 
perpetrated horror that nobody wants to own and take responsibility for. And yet there, if it doesn't turn out well, it's amazing how much is really riding on um, this election for a lot of people, because Mm -hmm. um, this is all happening in absolute broad daylight. You know, it's become kind of a joke uh, of the Trump era that Republicans, um, you know, say, well, I didn't see the tweet. You can't say I didn't see the tweet when it comes to some of these policies and particularly for the party of character, which has has a long and storied tradition of saying that the crucial test of public life is your demonstration of character. These are these are going to be seen as huge character failures from those who were in a position to do something and who knew about it. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't. You know, obviously, Donald Trump is a is a sociopath. I've said we've used that term already three or four times on the show today. Um, there is no such excuse for the Republicans in Congress, for the judges who have chosen to look away at these acts committed in our name, and for a a conservative media establishment that is that has decided it is better to be a propaganda outlet than to hold the administration to account. These are these are literal, you know, crimes that are being committed against children. I mean, they are they are it, it is acts of you know profound evil and immorality committed against children. In the case of this Ravada, uh, that sort of the, going to the twenty five billion dollars Spectrum giveaway, we have uh, an effort by some Trump insiders apparently to steer a twenty five billion dollar contract to a company that essentially has no track record, no history, and what it does have is close ties to certainly to Karl Rove and and other Trump allies. And again, like the level of this is like a level of this is theft from the country. It is theft from the United States. And where do we see the Republicans in Congress, the right wing media, the judges who have some capacity to stop this doing anything? We just don't see it. And it's the the failure of these other institutions and the complicity of these other institutions that is going to chill this country for many, many years to come, even if Trump is voted out of office. Now, hopefully, John, you think they'll learn lessons. I'm not sure they're going to learn lessons. I'm not sure these lessons are going to be learned in the way that we want. Believe me, I can line up behind that that view in a second. And I don't, um, I, I, again, it depends on how the election turns out and the size of the loss, if there is a loss and if and where it takes place. Um, uh, a lot of people haven't been punished for a lot of things in American life uh, when you might have expected them to. And the great book written by I'm not sure who, but that pulls all of these threads together when that book is written, um, because when you go back and look at some of the I mean, the stuff that you've forgotten, the various things that the president has said, which have been total fabrications and then saluted, not just for the purposes of getting past a reporter asking you in the halls of Congress, but policy that has been saluted and supported when you string it all out in a in a powerful narrative way it's quite it's quite a lot of material and when that book is written it could very well come to define an age and so there might be way different waves of of this as also all kinds of things get discovered that we don't even know are taking place right now because as emily going back to your point emily about what jeff sessions and rod rosenstein did is it's the it's the um the, the frantic efforts to please the boss that have created all these behaviors. And we saw it with um, 
Kirsten Nielsen and others. Um, and this is just in the immigration range. They're all, you know, every department has a version of those stories. Yeah, the grifting also makes me feel like this has been go. If Trump loses, and that remains a big if, it's going to be going on until January 20th. Like, there's still several weeks of the actual administration, and I'm not at all sure that even if Trump loses, those people who just see this as a chance to grift off of the government's money are going to be deterred, right? So you still have time to complete these contracts. And GapFest listeners, you still have time. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I worry about in terms of um, lessons learned and consequences is there's just so much. Like... You know, if Trump loses, it will be for so many different reasons. And I wonder if just the huge volume of corruption and bad judgment and immorality, will that make it easier for people who participated in one corner of it to let themselves off the hook? Right. Good question. I I would make one final point here, which is uh, to, I think, echo something one of you just said. I can't remember which. I apologize. In the case of this $25 billion potential spectrum giveaway. This was uncovered by CNN, uh, great work by Jake Tapper over there. And because of some very brave government sources who clearly uh, channeled information to Tapper or, or let it be somehow got this information out. But what has not gotten out? Like that's, that is, I think, what's going to be amazing to excavate if, if there is no second Trump term is what are all the things that you didn't get stopped or didn't get publicized, which were enormous, magnificent giveaways or or corruptions that we didn't know about. On COVID, there's been a mix of good and bad news in recent weeks. We have case loads rising in Europe and the United States. The U.S. is headed towards about 100,000 new cases a day. It looks like we're going to get there at some point this fall or in the winter. We have mortality at quite tragic levels around the world and in the U.S., although case uh, d- death rates are going down. Fewer, fewer people who get COVID are dying of it. Um, we have schools that have reopened or shutting back down in Boston, restaurants that have reopened or not shutting back down in various places. Um, the economy is in tatters. You have a Congress that has yet to pass a new uh, rescue bill, even though people desperately need a new rescue bill. So, Emily, I want to start with you. You, like me, are massively frustrated by what's going on with schools. What's frustrating you? Well, my school district still isn't open at all, not for one single day of instruction, though there is a vote coming up here in a couple weeks, and it's possible they'll open in November, which I hope they do. On the other hand, winter is coming, and um, the COVID rates are upticking everywhere. What's intensely frustrating to me about this part of the debate is that More and more, we have research that shows that schools are not spreaders of COVID in any kind of super spreader outbreak way, especially elementary schools. There's been more research, more press coverage of this. And I think the notion that keeping elementary schools closed is grounded in science has just been really, at this point, we can just cross it off the list. And yet, 
We continue to have cities, democratically run cities, that are closing schools instead of closing things like indoor dining, which clearly do have an effect on increasing the rate of COVID. And I mean, you know, restaurants pay taxes and school children don't. And they don't seem to have a powerful enough constituency pushing for them to be in school. But we started getting the first data from remote learning this fall, actually from D.C., and it was really distressing. K through two kids are are 9% behind hitting their literacy benchmarks, and the kindergartners were more than 20% behind. I mean, we are going to see the price of what we have done with this focus on remote school. We're going to see it play out for a long time, I fear. And the the choosing of priorities in cities that are supposed to be thinking about science and be putting kids first is really baffling to me. And I also feel like And I'm sure people will criticize me for saying this, but I think the teachers unions have not been willing to really look at the data and in any way put themselves on the line. And I am not saying the teachers who are high risk or older should be in the classroom. I understand that fear. But there were better ways of doing this than we have chosen. And I feel like this is true in my city and a lot of cities. The lack of creative thinking and the cost to the kids, it's just really, really upsetting to me. Do you, do you think there's been any significant improvement in that question or any significant uh, experimentation or ambition in that question since we started talking about this mm-hmm. four, five, six months ago, Emily? I mean, what's what's surprising to me is like, yeah, we knew that spring was going to be a rat fuck and it was a rat fuck. Like it was clear once school shut down, spring was lost. But then it was by in starting in June, July, every person who had a child in school was thinking, how the hell are we going to get through this fall? What's going to happen? How are we going to deal with this? And so there were all kinds of things, outdoor classrooms, you know, you know, doing pods, different forms of remote learning, uh, you know, bringing back younger kids. Is it Is it your sense that there has been adequate experimentation and change in that or just not? No. I mean, there are some some places like Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo, who's the governor of Rhode Island, she really pulled for this. And those schools are open much more than some of the other um, blue states. I mean, in the red states, there are schools open and they actually have not been super spreaders of COVID in those places either. There's increasing data shows that not surprisingly, if the kids, if everybody wears masks, you can really, really keep the rate of transmission very low. In terms of outdoor to ed, I mean, what I see are the private schools experimenting and doing really well at it. And, you know, never in our history that I know of have we basically given up on universal education for people who go to public school for free. And that's where we're at. We are at the point now where if you pay for school, you are likely in a nice pod with much more outdoor learning and things are going fine for you um, in terms of your kids' schooling. It's not perfect. It's not the normal, you know, more fun interactions, but you're getting in-person instruction. And if you are not paying for school, especially if you live in a city, then you have little or no in-person instruction. I mean, in Connecticut, every district is open except for New Haven. And, you know, that is largely the fault of our Board of Education. And the suburbs are doing fine. And the private schools and the charters are doing fine. It is very, very unequal. Emily, one of the things I've struggled with is this. I live in Washington, D.C. My youngest is in public school here. It's all been remote learning. And there's a lot of anxiety in D.C. public schools and D.C. public school families about returning to in-person 
uh, education. And I, DC public schools are very heavily black. The, the school population is very heavily black, also significantly uh, Latino. And COVID has hit so hard right. in those communities in a way that it hasn't hit nearly as hard in wealthier suburban communities where public schools may be more open. Like, how do you think... I, I totally agree with you that there, there, this has been a massive failure, but there is this real dread about the disease, and it's not—it's not an irrational dread. It's a dread based on how devastating it's been for Black and Brown people in this country. So, how do we balance that anxiety with the the fact that we're also losing a generation of children? No, absolutely. I mean, and also the mistrust, the idea that the public schools are really going to be equipped and are going to keep everybody safe. I think in um, lower income communities where the schools often have fewer resources, it's much harder to have that trust. I mean, I and it is absolutely true. I completely understand. And also in my own city, why people of color are more frightened about COVID absolutely rationally. It is also true that the surveys of parents who fear learning loss for their children, you also see people of color more concerned in that domain too. And so it's like they're getting hit both ways. And what should have happened last spring and summer was a huge national effort to make sure the schools had the resources they needed to open, to reach out to families, to reassure them that we were going to do this really carefully and safely for their kids and that they were going to be a priority. And I think it also had to be teachers and staff too, a set of reassurances that you are being honored as for doing something heroic here, just like we talk about first responders and we yes. are going to have your back. And none of that happened. And some of it was because Trump was so divisive. I mean, he called for reopening schools in this blanket kind of irresponsible way. Part of it, I really do think the unions had um, a role here. And then I think there was a failure of state and local leadership also. Now, it is fair to, to also mention, like, there are huge, so many other challenges going on during these times, but it's the lack of prioritization for the kids that just gets me every time. And as I watch this third wave or whatever, we never really ended the first and second waves, but this spike going on across the country, it just feels like school is going to be potentially out of reach for a longer period of time. And that is a tragedy. Yeah, and it has generational consequences. Yes. Yeah. The one other thing to just add to this is that when we talk about the summer, the this spike in in the fall, which by the way was predicted, um, and which by the way public health officials were trying to get the president to help when you talk about a national message, and he didn't lend uh, lend a hand or didn't put his oar in the water. It's now, according to the New York Times, the worst virus outbreaks in the U.S. are now in rural areas which has a whole set of challenges already, both with hospital capacity. This is not exactly on the school question, but it's um, these are areas where it's going to where getting hit is a greater challenge because of the, the infra they don't have the infrastructure to, to handle it if it gets truly out of control. Before we close this out, we're just a couple of weeks out from the election and Congress and the president have not agreed on another relief package, even though it is quite clear that Americans are in terrible economic shape. And it's, they're not in terrible economic shape because of the, they've been locked down. They're in terrible economic shape because the nature of this virus and the nature of the anxiety means that huge swaths of the economy, travel, any in-person gatherings, dining out, lots of other aspects of it are not working. And that has put millions and millions and millions of Americans out of work and many who remain at work are getting paid less or are at risk of losing their job. And there's a 
enormous amount of economic anxiety and uncertainty. Uh, we're already in this recession. People are spending down their savings, and yet there is not yet a relief package. Uh, Mitch McConnell this week basically said blatantly the president should not sign a relief package. He, I mean, I think it was a purely partisan move. It was a way of making the economy weaker in the event of a Biden presidency. Uh, what's going on here, John, with the politics? Well, he, he also can't get the votes with some of his, I mean, he can't get the votes with some of his members. And so a big, bloody, ugly fight within his caucus is not what you want but, in the, going into an election. But he just needs, I mean, honestly, they need three votes, three Republican votes to get a package passed. It's just to him saying, we don't want to pass a package that doesn't have a majority. I mean, it's not that they need 26 Republicans to pass a relief bill they need all the democrats and three sure. republicans it's that's, that's just not, a that's just like a want, their own stupid rule sorry well but you don't want you don't want to do that going into a into an election you know there will be something that that happens after the election once we see what the results are um really during um, the lame duck you think well i think the i mean let's imagine i mean it depends what the results are right. you know um if it's a huge swamping for republicans um than those who are still around might find. I mean, I am of this view that if there is a swamping, and this is not to say that that's what I think is going to happen, because I don't know what's going to happen. But if there's a swamping of Republicans, one of the ways to, again, this is in the scenario of a big loss by Republicans, to bleach out the the, the Trump years would be to do lots of aggressive action that is the opposite of what happened in the Trump years. And this would be a way to start huh. down that road. Won't happen. Well, many, yeah, that's my the scenario relies on a lot of things happening that, that are, you know, not certain. Let's go to cocktail chatter. This week's cocktail chatter is brought to you by the Winemaker Series featuring Adelaide Vineyards. To try their exclusive Anne's Estate Vineyard Syrah, text GABFEST to 351-444-9463. John, when you are having a glass of their Syrah, what will you be chattering about? Well, I, um, I'll be chattering about a, 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 a sad piece when normally I try to find things that are, this is bittersweet. Anyway, it's a wonderful piece in the New York Times by Nate Chinin. Um, it's about Keith Jarrett, the uh, piano, jazz piano virtuoso who had a series of strokes and he can no longer play again in public. So that's incredibly sad. And the piece is very well done and listening to Jarrett talk about his relationship with being a piano player and the fact that he no longer f identifies himself as one when he was one of the great jazz pianists is just, it's, uh, it's crushing. And yet um, it reintroduced me to his music and particularly uh, this live concert that he did in 1975. That's just amazing. And so it's a great, it's a great piece to read and it, and his music is worth, discovering or listening to, if you like, uh, jazz piano. So I was just really affected by it. Um, and, and so I think other people might be too. Emily, when you're having a glass of Adelaide Vineyards and Estate Syrah, what are you going to be chattering about? My chatter is about an article in ProPublica by Joe Sexton. 
the title starts with the phrase, he'd waited decades to argue his innocence. And it's about a man named Nelson Cruz who was convicted of murder in 1999 when he was 16 and has um, maintained his innocence and his efforts to get his conviction overturned in Brooklyn. He was before a judge who seemed like she was sympathetic and granted him a hearing. Um, This is Judge Shandia Simpson. But then it turned out that she had Alzheimer's. And this was just incredibly sad because she was in her early to mid-50s while this was going on. And so Sexton just does a great and very sensitive job of tracing all the twists and turns of this case, which the Brooklyn DA's office continues to stand behind this conviction. The Brooklyn DA has a conviction integrity unit, but this case, they don't believe that Cruz is innocent. And yet the mystifying behavior of this judge, who of course turns out to be suffering from dementia, is just makes it very hard to figure out whether Cruz really got his day in court. And I think particularly because my grandfather was a judge who had Alzheimer's, this was really affecting for me to read. Um, I feel like, Emily, have we discussed this, that there was this pretty good study about the prevalence of Alzheimer's among older judges and that that there's a significant amount of it and it's not really acknowledged and it's covered up and that there should be some, there needs to be some sort of more systematic way of, of nudging judges off the bench when they're not really capable of judging anymore. One of the things Sexton does really well is talk about the research showing that there's really no remedy for judges who suffer from mental afflictions like this. I think often because judges are in positions of power and they can be kind of buffered by their staff, it can be really hard to get them to step down. And so all of that plays into the story. So I recommend it. The beginning of the title is He'd Waited Decades to Argue His Innocence. And you can find it if you look for Joe Sexton's work in ProPublica. All right, my chatter. I have had the Adelaide Vineyards and Estate Syrah. In fact, I finished a bottle of it last night and chattered a lot as I was doing it. My <laughs> chatter today is about my new venture. So those of you who heard the top of this show heard me say that I'm now at CityCast. So I'm now running a company called CityCast. You can go to citycast.fm to see it. The .fm is a clue. It's an audio company. So uh, what I'm going to build, I'm going to chatter about what I'm going to build at CityCast. Uh, We're going to build a network of daily news podcasts around the country and cities, and we're going to launch in a handful of cities this winter. I have written a couple pieces about this and done some interviews about why I'm doing it, but just to boil it down into a few sentences, basically with the pandemic, with the economic crisis, with the Black Lives Matter movement, America has an immense need for great local journalism. And it's never needed it more. And yet, this is a moment when local journalism is in deep trouble. We've had 2,000 newspapers close in the past 16 years. I believe that podcasts, and I think this podcast is proof of it, it's testimony of it. I believe that podcasts, which are intimate and curious and passionate, are the ideal mechanism for building community and connections in cities that are buffeted by crisis and fighting for their future. I think that if you create a great podcast that is a that with a charismatic dynamic host who really wants to speak for their city and really wants to ask great questions about their city and loves their city to death and also thinks it's it's really messed up and needs to be fixed and having a podcast hosts like that and combining that with some elements of news and and uh, culture I think you can create something that's going to be wonderful so I need your help doing it 
when I went to Atlas Obscura, a number of you wrote in and I ended up working with some people who were GabFest listeners and it was great. They were fantastic colleagues. I also ended up with working with people who are friends of GabFest listeners. So I'm going to be hiring a ton and I need great people around the country. We have competitive pay. These are full-time jobs, excellent benefits. We're going to build a diverse, inclusive workplace. And I would like to hear from you. So I'm hiring, especially need charismatic, curious, dynamic, talky hosts who really love the city they live in. I need great senior producers. I need great junior producers. I need reporters. I need editors because we're also going to do a daily newsletter. So we need people who can write it. We need project managers. And I'm not sure yet what cities we're going to build in. Where we're going to build is going to depend a lot on where great people are and especially where I can find great producers and great, great hosts. So please, you can write to me at david.plots at citycast.fm or just check out citycast.fm. There's a jobs page. You can put your application in. I am really hungry to hear from you. And I would note that CityCast has a, um, it shares an owner with the Slate Political Gab Fest. It's owned by the Graham Holdings Company, which is the company that owns Slate. It used to own the Washington Post. It has a really long history in local journalism. It owns six local television stations, and it has a long history in audio with Slate, of course. And it was a big investor in Gimlet, and it was a, it owns Megaphone, which is a big podcasting company. And we're a for-profit because we think it's really important to figure out for democracy, to figure out how journalism can be a profitable business and how local journalism can be a profitable business. It's really critical. So again, check us out at citycast.fm or email me at david.plots at citycast.fm. And I can't wait to hear from you and hopefully to work with you. It's so exciting. It sounds, it's great and it has a great name and it's a great project. Listeners, a panoply a plethora, a cornucopia of amazing listener chatters that you tweeted to us at at Slate Gabfest this week. I actually ended up with like four of them, six of them that I wanted to do. I apologize. We, ha- we need to find like a way to give a home to all these incredible listener chatters. But I'm going to point to one that came from at Green Neck, Green Neck. And it's actually a story which I remember seeing when it first came out, which is back in 2013 in the Smithsonian. But it, just because it came out in 2013 doesn't mean it's not still amazing. It's a mind-blowing fact. The headline is, there are whales alive today who were born before Moby Dick was written. And it's just like this astonishing fact that whales have this tremendously long lifespan, or certain ones do, and they've seen the whole stretch of modern human history as, as Greenneck writes, like what, what would it look like? You were born in a pre-industrial world and now you're seeing, you know, nuclear submarines coming by you. And all of that has happened just in your lifetime. And it's, and it's amazing to think that these whales, most of whom the ones they're writing about in this were bowhead whales in the waters off Alaska, uh, what they've been through in the time that, you know, our, We've lived, our parents lived, their parents, their parents, their parents, and their parents lived. So what a, what a deep thought. I feel like that's a John Dickersonian thought. You know, I was, um, I was in a house recently that was built in 1795, and, f- and looking at the old beams um, that are still holding up its roof, and I had a similar thought, which was just the, that the, you know, some dude uh, probably uh you know in kind of some kind of smock with a with a weird kind of hammer was putting that up when george washington was in his second term 
and just the kind of I don't know, to be in the presence of things that are that old really hit me at that time. And it was just I was just walloped again when you were talking about the bowhead whales. Um, Do you think a whale uh, helped build it? No, I don't think so. I don't. Uh, I think that their um, most of their construction was underwater. That is our GabFest for today. We're produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you at regular time next Thursday, our last show before the election. We'll talk to you then. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You're better than Jeff Tubin, I bet. So this is just a crazy, crazy story. And those of you who follow media probably already know it, but I'll quickly recap it for those of you who don't, because it has relevance. Uh, I was telling my brother about it last night. He had not heard it. So clearly not all of our listeners know the story. Jeffrey Tubin is a uh, distinguished legal analyst for The New Yorker and CNN. He has been a writer at The New Yorker for 25 years. And uh, he was participating in an exercise that The New Yorker was doing with WNYC, the radio station, where they were doing an election simulation, where they were role-playing what might happen under certain scenarios in the election. I guess, were they going to turn into a podcast, Emily? Was that the purpose? I don't know. Like- were they just practicing? Mm-hmm. I'm still confused about that. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was a big Zoom Zoom call and various people were participating. Masha Gessen was playing Trump. There were other, who, I can't remember what they, there was lots of, it was sounded fun. It sounded like it would have been a good time. Uh, and Tubin was playing the role of the courts on this. At some point, he decided to stop playing the role of the courts. At some point, there's a Zoom breakout session and the cameras are still rolling. And, uh, but it's sort of, situation slightly changed but the cameras are still rolling and the other people on the call the zoom call realized to their horror that jeffrey tubin is masturbating on the call and does not realize that his camera is on and it is obviously excruciatingly embarrassing for them and it is uh humiliating for tubin when i guess he realizes what's happening this story gets written up by vice uh tubin has been suspended by the new yorker and there's been a whole kind of raft of discussion and debate about whether he should be punished for this, whether he should be punished more for this. Why are so many men defending him for masturbating? Like what's, what's, what's the deal with people defending him for masturbating during uh, a zoom call? Is this about some sort of white privilege? Like what's going on? Anyway, it's just a wild, wild story. It obsessed media Twitter for about 27 hours this week. And I'm interested in your thoughts. Emily, do you want to go first? John, why don't you go first? (sighs) (laughs) Emily, was that you feeling relief and not having to go first? Emily, if this was Joe Biden, you'd be like, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. So, I I mean, this is um, uh, where to begin. So, uh, let me see if I can put uh, the things on the table that are a part of the conversation without... uh, seeming to prioritize one over the other or or make a case for one over the other. So you have, there's a workplace question and a harassment question, which is 
in one area. Then another is just um, human sexuality issues and uncomfortableness with that, which is in another basket. Then there is the great phrase that Chris Sullentrop used on this podcast a thousand years ago, which is on the internet. The internet allows everybody to egg the same house, Hmm. which is the punishment and the crime. And whether, you know, global humiliation is, is a sufficient pun is a sufficient to the event. Anything else that's a part of this, Emily, that we should put on the table? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.